Marriage Matters series. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to uh, open your word and to gather together and worship you this morning. Uh, we thank you that you are a good father, uh, that many of us have had, uh, dad, all of us have had sinful dads, many of us have bad dads, and, um, but you are a good father. And you pursue us and you love us and you take us back when we turn our backs on you. Uh, I pray if there's anybody here that's like a prodigal, that they would turn back to you today. And I pray, God, that you would uh, have a word for each one of us, a word for our, our own marriages, a word that maybe you want us to share to encourage someone else, a word for those that aren't married right now, that you would speak your truth into our lives, that you would transform us, overwhelm us with your love, and pour your love into our hearts. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, this week was interesting for me. On Thursdays, oftentimes when I write the sermon, and uh, Thursday morning I woke up and I went to brush my teeth, normal morning routine. Yes, I do brush my teeth regularly in spite of what you may have smelled out in the lobby from time to time. That's after talking for long periods of time. And so I get up in the morning and I turn the water faucet on and I don't have the normal water pressure. I don't think a lot of it. And then I go to turn the shower on and, and I'm pretty particular in how I like the shower water to come out. It wasn't quite hard enough. And so I went over to our pantry, which is where the shutoff valve is for the whole house. And it wasn't turned up all the way. And so I turned it up all the way and went back in there. And I took a shower. It was an adequate shower. I got done, ate my breakfast. And I was going to rinse off the plates from the breakfast that I'd eaten. And there wasn't quite enough water pressure to, pour, to knock the food off of the, uh, the plates. Have you ever done that before? And I had a decision point at that moment. Do I move forward and work on the sermon, ignore this issue that's going on? Uh, do I go, you know, just go work? Or do I go check this out? Now, if you've been at our church for very long, you know that I'm not exactly a handyman. And so even if I do find a problem, I don't know how I'm going to fix it, but I thought maybe there's like two valves under there and one of them's turned off and so we're only getting half of our water or something. And so I decide that I'm going to go underneath our house. Our house is built on a crawl space and look for where this problem's going to be. When I'm approaching the door to our crawl space, I hear what sounds like a waterfall. Last I knew, we did not have a waterfall installed underneath our house. And so I open up the crawl space door, and I look back. In the back corner, there's a pipe that's not attached to anything else, and it's just pumping water into the back corner of our crawl space onto the foundation of the house. <laughs> I turned the water off to the whole house. And I guess that's not what I had to do, but that's what I did. Just another uh, example of me not doing the right thing there. But I called a plumber, had them come over, but... Remember, I could wash my hands, I could brush my teeth, I could take a shower, it was functioning well enough. I, I could have ignored it till today. Now, eventually we'd have a pretty high water bill. I'm not a structural engineer, but I'm pretty confident that pouring gallons and gallons of water on the foundation of your house for a long period of time will cause some kind of damage over the long run. And then I went and after I turned the water off, called the plumber, waited for him to come over, I started working on the sermon. And it struck me. That situation is so much like what we've seen happen through this sermon series. Because what's happened in our sermon series, we did that first week, we talked about foundational, what marriage is all about. And that shaped some of your vision. I know even some single people, that shaped some of their ideas about what marriage is supposed to be. And some, some conversations happened. Then we did the second week where we talked about roles in the marriage and the husband's role being different than the wife's role. And, and, and there were some things that came up. But it was that third week, really, when we talked about sex and what sex is supposed to be, that at least what was getting to me were some serious conversations about marriages, some marriages that were having some serious issues, some people that weren't having sex at all, some people that were having sex, but it wasn't what we were talking about in the sermon. And then we talked last week about what to do when marriage is a mess, and then it was like, boom, now we're going to deal with some stuff. And this is just what's happening, and I don't know what's happening in your house, but what's happened for several folks in our church 
And so what happens is now you realize there's some issues. Now, a lot of those issues aren't, you know, we're about to get a divorce, it's about to be all over. But it's kind of like at my house. I could take a shower, I could brush my teeth, I could eat a meal, we could still be doing today and have the water just pumping into the foundation of the house. Let me tell you where that ends up. Eventually something happens in your marriage to where either you decide you're just going to deal with this low-lying pain. Like, have you ever had a headache before? And it's not so bad that you can't go to work. It's not so bad that you can't concentrate. But it's like, it's just, it's there and it bothers you. But eventually you learn to just deal with it. Or maybe you've hurt, you know, you hurt your knee and you limp for a little while and you notice it. But eventually that just becomes the way that you walk. And that's what happens with some people in their marriage. Uh, for some people, what will happen is they'll continue to have this problem. It's not so bad that it's going to break up the marriage, but eventually what you have is two people that live together, and they're really more like roommates than they are like spouses. And you live in the same house, and from everybody else's outside perspective, it may seem like, it may seem like you have a great marriage, but you know there's an issue. It's kind of like that water just pumping into the foundation of my house. So some people, it's going to end in divorce. Now, here's the reality. In church, oftentimes we act like, as long as you don't get to step three, everything's Okay. Just don't get a divorce. Then after, just pretend like everything, whatever, you figure it out. But just let me tell you something. What we've been talking about in this series is a different kind of vision for marriage. We talked about having marriages that are not just better than what the rest of the world has, but are different, altogether different. Essentially, what we've been talking about is that marriage would actually be like Acts chapter 2 lived out in a marriage relationship. Where we're, we're giving our lives for the sake of the other person. We're praying together and praying for each other that if one person has a need, we'll sacrifice. So the other person's need is met, that it's founded, it's built on the Word of God. So that we would live out Acts chapter 2 in our marriage context so that Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16 would happen. That other people would see our lives, would see our marriages, and they'd be so different, they'd say, I want that. That's not just better than my I want Whatever it is that you got, I want that. And what it is is Jesus. Because ultimately what we're doing is we're pointing them to Jesus Christ. That our our marriages would be a picture of Christ's love for the church. And so that's ultimately been the vision. And so some of us have identified issues going through this. Do something. That would be my response to you today. I mentioned some steps that you can take before I even started the message. Sign up for the marriage small group. Go and come talk to one of your pastors, any of the pastors of this church, myself included. We'd love to talk with you about your marriage. You need to sign up, go see a counselor. We've got uh, biblical counselors that we will recommend you to go see. Some of you, it's going to take time, it's going to take work, it's going to take sacrifices, it's going to take lots of things because it's work, but it's great. And today what we're going to talk about is a topic that many people would start a marriage series with, but I wanted us to first have the foundation laid. Today what we're going to talk about is what is love? And today we're going to specifically say, what is biblical love? Because if I were to survey, say, 200 people in the cafeteria after the service today, if I took a clipboard and I asked one question, what is love? I bet you I'd get 250 different definitions. Because some of you might change as you're giving it. Well, I think love is this tingly feeling I get when I think about that person. No, I can't stop thinking about that person. You give me two definitions right there. What are the definitions? See, we live in a day and age where people call adultery making love. We got a lot of different ideas out there about what love is. And today what we're going to do is we're not going to survey all the different concepts and definitions of love, but we're going to go to the one who is love. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8, it says this, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. His most basic characteristic, most basic definition of who God is, is that God is love. And then he commands us to love. See, some people in response to our culture will give you a definition of love that says that love is an action. (laughs) And it's really trying to battle against the idea of it just being this emotion that we fall into or fall out of. 
I don't know what the weather's like right now. It looked like it was going to rain when I came in here this morning. I don't know if it's raining or not. I have no control over the rain. Some of you act like love is like that. I just fall into love or I fall out of love. And so you hear all these Bible preachers that will say, that is not love. Love is an action. Let me tell you something. Love is also an emotion. If anyone tells you it's just an action, they've only given you a partial definition. But it's interesting that then God commands us to this emotion the greatest commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, love your neighbor. That's biblical love. It's emotion and it's action. And how can he command our emotions? Have you ever thought about that? But it's not just a tingly feeling that we get when we think about a person. It's not just some obsessive thinking that we have about dreams of the future with that person. It's the kind of love that he commands us to have even for our enemies. It's altogether different kind of love. In Luke chapter 6, he says this. Luke chapter 6 says, if you love those who love you, What benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Anybody does that. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. And then Jesus says to his disciples, but you love your enemies. Sometimes that may feel like your spouse is your enemy. (laughs) What we're talking about today is that kind of love. The kind of love that you have for God, the kind of love that you have for your neighbor. Is there anyone that's more your neighbor than your spouse? The kind of love that you would have even for your enemy. It is an emotion and also an action. And we're going to talk about it from what many people talk about as the ultimate love chapter in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And so if you have your Bible, please join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's in the back part of the New Testament. This is, some people have said, the greatest piece of literature that Paul's ever written. Some people call it the hymn of love. But what happens usually when this passage of Scripture is preached is that people rip it right out of its context, say a lot of eloquent things about love from it, but you miss the power and the point of the passage if you rip it out of its context. This was written to a church that was screwed up. Okay, never, if you ever plan a church, don't name it Corinthian church. <laughs> there are a lot better examples in the Bible than the Corinthian church. Let me tell you about the Corinthians. The Corinthians were incredibly materialistic very self-centered. They love sports. They would worship sports. They were an over-sexualized society. Does this sound familiar at all? (laughs) In fact, the problem for the Corinthian church was this. They were supposed to be a light in this dying world that they lived in, but the world was influencing the church more than the church was influencing the world. So it sounds a lot like the American church, but let's not act like at Southbridge we're exempt. They were being highly influenced also in their thoughts about love. And so what happens in this chapter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, is Paul's actually countering. He's showing them they're not loving. And so what we have here is not an exhaustive definition. This isn't everything there is to be said. In fact, it's not even a definition of love. But he shows some characteristics of love, which are actually pointed directly at the Corinthians, the ones who are fighting over the Lord's Supper, the ones who are taking each other to court, the ones in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that are tolerating sin they shouldn't be tolerating within the church. And he's showing them with these characteristics, you're not loving. You don't love. The immediate context in chapter 12 is they're abusing the spiritual gifts that they've been given for the sake of edifying the body and reaching a world for Christ, and they're making them about themselves. The gift they love the most is the gift of tongues. The gift that Paul says is the greatest gift, the gift of prophecy. With that in mind, let me read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and then we'll come back and break it down. Chapter 13, verse 1 says this, If I speak in the tongues of men... And of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So he picks their gift first, the gift they love the most. But then he goes after his own too. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, 
And if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Verse 8, love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. The gifts are going to go away. As for knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, time's going to change. The partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. Of course you did. Everyone did. That's what children are supposed to do. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But time changed. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. Abide in these things. These things, they're all good things. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hope is a biblical concept of hope, incredible thing. But he says this, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Amen? Amen. And so without faith, it's impossible to please God. But he says that love is greater than faith. And so what he does in this chapter is he exalts love to the highest place. Let me tell you the breakdown of the chapter, just the structure breakdown, because that's how our outline is going to go today for the sermon. Verses 1 through 3 is one section. talks about the supremacy of love. talks about the importance of love. Verses 4 through 7 is really like a, a test of love. Uh, a, it goes through like a grid of love. And he talks about these different characteristics of love. Verses 8 through 13 then tell us that love lasts, that love endures, that love is eternal. And so today's message is going to go through biblical love is, and I use the word biblical because I'm trying to set it apart from the 250 other different definitions of love that we have. And so all throughout the Bible, we get characteristics. This passage doesn't say everything there is to say, but it does say some things about what biblical love is. It'll be biblical love is, biblical love is, biblical love is in different parts based on these different sections. The first one that we see is he talks about these various different examples of extreme actions, but he says you can have the actions without having love. And so biblical love is more than just actions. That's our first point. Biblical love is more than just actions. But here he uses these examples of actions. And I love how Paul does this because every once in a while I get critiqued, usually from friends, that I over-illustrate stuff in my sermons. Paul uses multiple examples here to teach the same point in verses 1 through 3. So I'm just copying the Bible for those of you who want to give me a hard time. And there'll be no illustrations in today's message. Just kidding. But see, what's supposed to happen here, if I'm, you know, a biblical preacher, is my first point on preaching about love is, is supposed to be that love is action. And, and, and that wouldn't be, you know, that'd be a significant point if I was speaking like to the Rotary Club or if I was speaking to, you know, just some secular group, some business or something. But at church, it's almost expected that that's the response because it's a counter to this idea of all the emotionalism that's tied up in love. But what Paul does here in these first three verses, he shows us it's more than just action. Now, if I wanted to talk about action alone, I'd jump straight to verses four through seven, which is what some people do. And you've got 15 different characteristics of love through there. They're all verbs. And so it's not just about what love is, it's about what love does. But in the first three verses, and I think God has a word for us from the first three verses too. In the first three verses, he shows these extreme actions and says it's possible to have actions, even actions that seem loving, without love. And so what do you get? We'll go back to verses one through three and look at it. He uses these examples. First, he picks one that would be a big deal to them. If I speak in the tongues of men, so if I can speak different languages, if I could preach in Mandarin, if I could preach in Spanish, if I could preach in French, 
But not only that, but if I had the spiritual gift, and I spoke in these ecstatic languages that, that someone would have to interpret, but not only that, he takes it to another level. He says here, that language of angels, we don't even know if there is a language of angels. This might be hyperbole, we don't know. But he says, even if I could speak in the language of angels, but I didn't have love, I'm just making noise. He says, I'm a clanging gong, a, a clanging cymbal. But then he doesn't just like, he's just hammering on them and picking on their issue. He takes his own. He's, he says, this, you know, we want one of the greatest gifts, desire one of these gifts like prophecy. He says, if I have prophetic powers, the ability to explain God's truth and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And so here he doesn't just say able to explain mysteries, all mysteries. Because Paul is able to explain mysteries. We read it when we were reading about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, this is a profound mystery. And I'm talking about Christ and the church. Your marriage isn't even about your marriage, he said. So he can explain mysteries, but here he says all mysteries. He can't do that. He didn't have all knowledge. But he says, even if I did have all knowledge, and even if I had faith that could move mountains, so it's possible to have faith that can move mountains and not have love. He says, I'm nothing. And then he gives this example. Verse 3 is the one that gets me. If I give away all I have, so think about that. Bill Gates gives away all he has. Warren Buffett gives away all he has. Or the poorest person you know gives away all they have. And you're probably somewhere in between those two things. Probably not Bill Gates, Warren Buffett. If so, we'd love to build a building someday. <laughs> Glad you're here. Probably, you probably have met people that are poorer than you. It doesn't matter who it is on the spectrum. If you give away, it says here, all you have. Not all you have except, not more generous than you've ever been before, but like, your house, your car, the shirt on your back, that's all, all you have. So you don't even have a shirt anymore. That's sacrifice. So he's saying in verse 3, even if I do great sacrifice, I don't have love. So how is it even possible to have great sacrifice and not love? Let me tell you how. It's love for self. You can be incredibly generous and it still be about you, about your legacy about how good it makes you feel. See, sometimes Christian ministries even do appeal to this idea of our selfishness when they try to get us to sacrifice. They'll say, oh, you'll, you're going to give, but you're going to get back more than you actually give. You don't know what it's going to do to you. It's going to bless you. And you know what? They're, they're appealing. They're getting you to the end result. It's very pragmatic. You'll give, but you're not loving because it's still all about you. So they're actually robbing you of the blessing of true love. And you know what Paul said? It doesn't last. It doesn't matter. It means nothing. But the next example is the most extreme. Look at it. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. The picture there is of martyrdom, of being burned at the stake for your faith. And Paul's saying here it's possible to be martyred for your faith and it not be loving too. And I read that, and I was thinking this week, and I oftentimes share, you know, that I've been impacted personally by a lot of martyr stories, because I always think, would I do that? Am I too selfish? In the moment, would the, you know, the Spirit just come through, and I don't know what would happen. And so I share these stories often. The most recent one that I remember sharing, and I did it in one service, I don't remember if it was the first or the second, a few weeks ago, was about a woman who, uh, she was preaching the gospel, and people were trying to stop her from preaching the gospel, and so they burned her at the stake, but not only did they burn her at the stake so that she wouldn't preach the gospel while she was burned at the stake, they actually took a screw and screwed her tongue to the top of her mouth. Her two sons came out while she was being burned at the stake to, to be there for her during that moment. It was too gruesome for them. One of them passed out, and he's the one who told the story. He said afterwards he dug through the rubble, and he found the screw that they used to, to screw their tongue to her mouth so that he would remember to always be bold with the gospel. Now, I don't know 
what her motives were. I don't know why she did what she did. But that's being burned at the stake. And then I'm reading this and I'm thinking, it's possible that that didn't matter? It's possible that it meant nothing? And the answer is yeah. If, I don't know what her motives were, but if it wasn't done out of her love for God, and her, if it was done to show how committed she was, if it was done so she, she would be remembered, if it was done for her own selfish desires, yeah. And it's possible that people do that. And so what Paul does here is he takes these examples, and the examples can be changed. The examples are just illustrations to, to make the point that lacking love, the action doesn't matter. You can have actions without having love. And so I was thinking about it for our, our context as we're doing a marriage series. Think about all the things that we've talked about, principles we've learned. I was thinking through premarital counseling. When I do premarital counseling, I require that I meet with a couple four times. The first time is really, we talk about a vision for marriage, but I want to make sure they're both believers in Jesus because the stuff we're going to talk about afterwards is foundational. They both have a relationship with Christ, and so everything's going to be built on that. Obviously, if the marriage is supposed to be a picture of Christ's love for the church. But then we hit real pragmatic, real practical topics. We talk about budgeting. We talk about communication. We talk about sex. We talk about, you know, having a budget together and how oftentimes that'll bring stuff out. We talk about what are some conflicts you've had. And oftentimes what I'll do is I'll try to see is there an unresolved issue. And I don't really even care, to be honest with you, what the unresolved issue is, but I want them to learn how to work through it. And so I always give an assignment. And anybody here that that I've actually performed your your marriage ceremony, they can tell you about the four-hour conversation. Four-hour conversation assignment that I always give uh, to young married couples. And what it is, what happened was in my own story, is that my wife and I, before we got married, we were meeting with a mentor couple. And one morning we were having breakfast with just the husband. And we had gone on a college break for a little bit, come back. And he said, did you work through your issue? We had an issue we were talking to him about. Did you resolve it? And he looked at my wife, at the time my fiance, and said, did did you resolve it? She said, yes. Then he looked at me and said, Scott, did you, you resolve it? And I said, oh, yeah. And then he just kept staring at me, and it was kind of uncomfortable. And he said, Scott, when you communicate with your future bride, um, sometimes you need to hear more than just her words. You need to read her eyes. And I'm like, man, just, could you just keep this simple? Like in my head, I'm like, this is becoming, just tell me the facts, sir. Come on. But then I could see it when he looked back at her, and he said, Shanna, are you sure you worked through this issue? And it was like the waterworks underneath my house at that moment. And she starts bawling right at the table. And it's like, okay, obviously we didn't work through the issue. And then he gave us an assignment. He said, I want you to go to a restaurant. And for four hours, I want you to talk about this one topic. He said, tell the waiter, you know, tip them appropriately and sit back in the corner at some public place so you can't like get so mad at each other. Somebody storms off, but sit there and I want you just to talk. And when you think you've talked about it enough, then come back and start talking about it again. And then when you're done with that and you've got resolution, then I want you to beat the dead horse and you just keep going through and talking about this topic. And I thought about some of the, the practical things that I'll do with couples like that. And then you put it with this passage and you go, well, you can have the four-hour conversation and, and you can forgive each other and you can do the budget and you can have plan for your kids and you can even have sex but not have love. Guess what? You got nothing. So how do you know if you have love? What Paul's telling us here is this, your motive matters. Not just what you do, not just the activity. I've, I'm done. All right, it's fine. Move on. Go to the next thing. But why do you do that? Is it because you've been forgiven? Why do you have the communication? Is it because you care about what's actually happening in that person's heart? Is it because, no, he said to have a four-hour conversation. I want my life to be easier. Why do you have a budget? Why do you have a plan for kids? Why do you do the things that you do? That all matters. Because here he says you can give generously and not have love, and it doesn't matter. Do you know what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8? He starts praising a church for giving generously, trying to motivate the Corinthians to give. But do you know what he says about them? They long to give. They desire to sacrifice, not for their own glory. It's there's a joy in it. God loves a cheerful giver is what it says. 
And why is it? Because the motive is there. So it's not just do you do the action, but the motive actually matters. Biblical love is more than just actions. And biblical love is for the sake of another. And that's what you see in verses 4 through 7. Biblical love is focused on others, is our second point. Biblical love is focused on others. And so I already mentioned, you know, we live in this time where, you know, adultery is called making love. You get a movie like Fifty Shades of Grey, and they call it a love story. Listen, I haven't seen Fifty Shades of Grey. I'm pretty confident that's not this kind of love. You go to the bookstore, and guess what kind of culture we live in? There's a self-help section. That's awesome. What about an others' help section? Have you seen one of those? It should be the Christian section, by the way. However, usually if you go to the Christian section, it's just a self-help section with verses torn out of context and slapped on some secular principles about how you can help yourself and how you can have a better marriage and how you can have more money and how you can have more sex. And, and it takes our idolatry and puts Bible verses on how to obtain your idolatry. Oftentimes what we are saying when we tell someone else that we love them, we sincerely believe in our hearts that is love because that's what we've been fed about love. What we really mean is we love ourselves and you do something for me. So you make my life easier. You make me, you admire me. You, you make me feel good about this. You, you have sex with me. You provide for me. You protect me. How many, how many people won't get a divorce because of financial reasons? There's no love there. What is it? It's love for self. That's not biblical love. And so a common quote that I saw this week as I was doing some reading about this is what people should be saying is, I love me and I want you. I love me and you do something for me that delivers one of my idols. And so I want you. Help me deliver my idol. Whatever it is, self-esteem, reputation, money, sex. What is the idol that I'm seeking? You're helping me get it. What I really do is I love me. That's not love. What Paul's doing here to the Corinthians, he's showing them this. As he's going through verses 4 through 7 and showing them, you don't love. It's not real love. What you're doing at church, that's not love, is what he's telling them. And so you go through this, and it's like a grid or a test. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this. Each one of these characteristics could be a whole sermon. Don't worry. I'm not going to preach a whole sermon. I'm just going to read one of these characteristics, tell you what they mean, and then ask you as you think about your marriage, for those of you who are married, and this passage isn't actually written to married people. It's just written to a church. And so if you're not married, just think about your relationships in general. It says, love is patient. Now, what is patience? Patience is not just, you're ready to go, and you're going to be on time, but your spouse isn't, and you decide not to say anything. (laughs) Patience is more than that. Patience is a characteristic of God. In fact, each one of these things that we're going to read is something that's been demonstrated towards us and God's love towards us. We haven't all experienced it because we haven't all received God's love, but it's, it's God's love towards us that he gives us. And his love is patient. What is patience? Patience is this. It's, it's the ability, the capacity to be wronged and not retaliate. It's the capacity someone does something wrong to you. It can be time-oriented or it could be lots of other things. And you don't seek revenge. You're not retaliating as a result of it. What does the Bible say about the way that God's loved you? That God is patient. He's not slow in keeping his promises. He's patient, not willing that any would perish. He wants everyone to come to a saving relationship with him. If God were impatient, you and I wouldn't have been born before he came back. He gave you time to repent, time to turn to him. Eventually his patience ends. He will come back. But there's a characteristic of patience. He's slow to anger. Abounding in what? Patience is a demonstration of love. And so love is patient. Is your love for your spouse patient? And is it kind? Kindness is an interesting one. Oftentimes these two things are paired together when you see them in Scripture, patience and kindness. Kindness is like the opposite of patience, but in a positive way. 
As patience is the ability to take anything, basically, kindness is the desire to give anything. And so the best way to actually define this, rather than just giving you terminology, is we've all, we all know a kind person when we meet them. And some of us, it's like we have a gift of kindness. Some people are just especially kind. They're the people that don't ask you the question, what can I do to help you? They just help you. They're seeking your needs. They're sensing what's going on, and they're willing to give. While the patient person can take anything, the, the kind person is willing to give anything. Serve, be generous, to be useful some way to help meet your needs. They're sensing your needs. Think about how God's done this with us. He died for you before you were ever born. God's gone ahead of you. He knows, the need. he knows your needs tomorrow. Mercy is new every day. How does he know that? He's already in tomorrow. That's why. He knows your needs, and he meets your needs. You've received that love. Then we get this tangent of a bunch of stuff that love is not. Love does not envy. It's longing for something someone else has or boast, bragging about your stuff. It's not arrogant. And so here, talk about a whole message on pride. A lot of times we have this error in pride, though. We oftentimes think that pride is just cockiness. It's the person who's got too much confidence, and they're willing to show everybody their confidence. Usually as a disguise for insecurity. There's another kind of pride, and some of you might do this in your marriage. It's a victim mentality. It's always a kind of a woe is me. Like things are just happening to me. Do you know what the pro- that person is a proud person too. You go, no, that's not pride. No, pride is when you think too much about yourself. That's exactly what the victim mentality is doing. They're continually thinking about themselves, just like the cocky person is always thinking about themselves. There's no pride. Is pride a characteristic of your marriage? It's not rude, verse 5. We've all, we've all been around couples before where they're rude to each other. And it's uncomfortable for everybody there except for that couple because they don't realize it's uncomfortable for everybody there. <laughs> you know, so the backhanded comments, the controlling or domineering statements, the humor at the other person's expense, that's not love. The Corinthians were rude. The way they were taking communion, the Corinthians were arrogant. The Corinthians, they, they would envy one another's things. They were boastful and brag. Even in, their, in all their wretchedness, they thought they were awesome. And then here, if you want a, a statement that makes it really clear that it's not about its own way, that's about the sake of the other. It says this, verse 5, love does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It's easily annoyed. And then it says here, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing. The idea of rejoicing at wrongdoing is not just celebrating sin, but it's, also, it's justifying sin. Don't you ever run in a couple where it's like, oh, he just, I mean, his dad was really angry or he had a drinking problem and there's all these stories and she comes from this and you're justifying sin. But instead it says here, it, it rejoices in the truth. It rejoices in rightness. It rejoices in goodness. You think about the Corinthians and the issue they had in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 of not dealing with sin and just pretending like everything's okay and tolerating sin. Some translations will translate, uh, uh, one of the characteristics here is it keeps no record of wrongs too. That's ledger language that is there in the original translation. The, the ESV kind of goes over it here, skips over it. But it says it keeps no records of wrongs. A lot, of, a lot of marriages are this way, where we treat it like we're in this contract with one another that we're continually negotiating. I remember when I was in college, there was a couple that came. I went to a Christian college, and so we had chapel every day. And one day in chapel, there was this couple that came, and they were doing a, a drama, a skit, back when that was popular in churches. And the way they were acting stuff out was that the husband had a book he was standing there with, and the wife had a book she was standing there with, and they were writing down everything the other person did. And there was a positive column, and there was a negative column. So the positive column was like, you know, he washed the car today. He took out the garbage. He came home from work on time. And the negative column was like, well, he made me pick up the kids and he didn't acknowledge my new haircut. And like, there was all these different things that were going through the deal. And what you ended up realizing as you watched it was how exhausting just to live that way. 
But then it was clearly not loving because it was like, do you, did you earn? Do you deserve this? And what, what Paul's saying here is, no, it keeps no record of wrong. It's not jotting down the way you live your lives. Because it's not about, do they deserve? That's not biblical love. That's not the way you've been loved. It's an unconditional love. It keeps no record of wrongs. Of course it forgives. You've been forgiven. And it goes on. Verse 7, it's a way to translate this verse, verse 7, where it just repeats all things, all things, all things, all things. It says here, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Very poetic, the way that it's written there. There's another way you could translate it. The NEB, New English Bible, says it like this. There's nothing love cannot face. In other words, love lasts through all circumstances. There's no exception clauses. Is that your marriage? And you go back through each one of these. Is that your marriage? Is it, is there, is it characterized by pride? Is, it about, is there rude comments? Does it assist on its own way? Are we constantly negotiating? Is it this ledger type love? Because that's not the way you've been loved. It, are there exceptions? I'll love you as long as you don't ever. I'll love you as long as you do. That's not love. What Paul's doing here is he's pointing out to the Corinthians, you don't love. When you think about your marriage, do you do this? I think about that exception clause idea. I remember there's one lady that I know in her first marriage, her husband told her, I'll love you and stay with you as long as you never cheat on me with another woman. When she wanted out of the marriage, guess what she did? Now she's married to another man. She didn't love that other woman. She just wanted out of that marriage. And you gave the exception clause. What was he doing? That wasn't love. That was, I can handle a lot of stuff, but for self-preservation, there's this one thing I can't handle. That's self-love. What about, what about you? Do you have exceptions? Do you have exception clause? That's not love. That's not unconditional love. You don't, just, you don't just tolerate every bad thing that happens though either. You go back in there. It rejoices in the truth. Some things have to be confronted. But are you patient? Are you willing to take a wrong on yourself without retaliating? Are you kind? Are you seeking ways to help meet the other person's need? Are you envying? I wish I, had the, I wish I could go to work and I had to stay here with these kids. I wish I could stay home with the kids and have to go to work. Wish, boasting. You go through all these things. Irritable, easily annoyed. Does that characterize your your, your love? And here's what all of this is. If you put it all together, it's sacrifice. All biblical love requires sacrifice. I read this quote this week by Paul, Paul Tripp in his book, What Did You Expect?, which I recommend. It's in the small group study. He says this, there's no such thing as love without sacrifice. It doesn't exist. It says, love calls you beyond the borders of your own wants, needs, and feelings. Love calls you to be willing to invest time, energy, money, resources, personal ability, and gifts for the good of another. Well, it's possible to sacrifice without loving, but it's not possible to love without sacrificing. What he says, love calls you to lay down your life in ways that are concrete and specific. Love calls you to serve, to wait, to give, to suffer, to forgive, and I'd be, I'd be great if he just stopped right there. But then he says, you do all those things again and again. <laughs> no, I sacrificed once. I forgave once. I'm, we're good. We should have a great marriage. Oh, no. You've got these two sinners that live together. <laughs> You've got a lot of opportunities to die to yourself daily. That is sacrifice. But my question is this, and the passage doesn't answer right here. How? How? And does anyone do it? Because we know the Corinthians don't do it. Just read the rest of the book. Does anyone here do it? Does anyone want to come up here and give a testimony to it? I, you, I will open up the mic. I've got another mic. I was talking to my wife about it this week. I said, hey, this passage. I said, didn't I read this passage to you when I proposed? Which is not the most romantic thing to say, by the way. Don't forget what you said when you proposed. 
She said, yeah, yeah, you did. And I remember when I proposed to her, I got down on my knee. I had it all planned out. We had this spot. It was the first spot I'd ever kissed her at. Yes, I did kiss my wife before the altar. For some of you that are wondering these ideas you have about pastors, I need to give her a kiss. We had this spot we would go to, and we would have talks out there. Well, I went out there, and I set up a camera. This is before you had an HD camera in your pocket, okay? This is how old I am. It was a VHS camera. Have you ever even seen VHS cameras? Have you seen that? The, big, the tape was, the, it was called a tape. The tape was bigger than a phone, okay? It was this huge thing. And I got out there. I set up the camera. I forgot a VHS tape. I had everything planned out. We were going on this date. We went to all these spots, had people meeting us, and I forgot the VHS tape. But anyway, I borrowed one from a neighbor, set this camera up, hit it there, get down on my knee. I say all the sweetest things that I've ever said in my whole life to anybody. I'm just pouring out my words to her and I'm going to ask her this question if she'll marry me. And I read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verses 4 through 7. I want to love you with this kind of love. And then we were talking about it this week and I was like, I'm a fool. <laughs> I did not do that. I was so immature. I, I wasn't even capable of doing it. I don't even know what I was. Why did I read that? What a hypocrite. And then, then she, started, she was very gracious. She's like, well, we did the best we could at that time, you know, in those moments. I thought, we weren't doing that. The Corinthians aren't doing that. Does anybody do this? How does it happen? You know how it happens? You go back through these characteristics. It's all been given to you. And so you share what you've received. And so you think about what we've received as believers in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 5 says he's poured his love into our hearts. Have you received that? Some of us, we think we've got to work. We've got to get to a spot to be able to do it. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. While we were at sinners, Christ died for you. So you say, well, you, would not, you couldn't love you. If you had a spouse like my spouse, then you wouldn't have to. That's your greatest opportunity to put the gospel on display. When they're sick, when they're evil, when they're not, that's, you're, that's looking at God's love. Have you received that kind of love is the question. Because that's the love that's given to you when Jesus walks the road to Calvary. That's the love that's given to you when he's on the cross and goes, oh my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the love that was demonstrated for you and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's the love that is the God. See, love is actually an event. And it was an event that happened on the cross of Christ. And the question is, have you received that love? And my, my fear is, especially here in the South, where church is like a normal thing that you do, and you get a reputation for being a good person in the community, and all these things that come with benefits of, you know, whether it's office, jobs, whatever it is, that comes with being a Christian, that I will say these words to you, and it's like, they'll just, they just hit you, and you know they're true, but you won't do anything about them. Is that many of us have barriers to God's love. So I'm not asking, have you like raised your hand? Did you stand up? Did you walk an aisle? Do you know John 3.16, for God so loved the world? But have you received the love of God? And, and what happens for many of us is we got these barriers, a barrier of performance. And so I, I got to do things. I got to show them I'm, I'm worthy of love. And what we're doing is we're really going, God's trying to give love and we're like blocking it. It's like, you know, like a, if I had a shield, I'd put a shield up. Our barriers of religion. It's so the very fact, I'm not telling you not to go to church. You're commanded to go to church in the Bible. But some of you, the very thing that's stopping you from receiving the love of God is because you go to church so much. And you go to Bible study on Monday night. And you go to small group on Tuesday night. And then you serve at something on Wednesday night. And you've got all this religion that you're doing. And you're not receiving the love of God. It's like the religion stopping you. It's like, well, one day, at one point, I'm going to have done enough, sacrificed enough, showed enough love. He's going to believe that I love him. Then I'll be worthy of his love. No, you won't. Some of you, it's your reputation. You grew up in this community. Maybe you, you lead a min some of you lead ministries. And for you to acknowledge you haven't received God's love would require you to humble yourself, which then you think you'd lose your reputation, and it's your reputation that's like a barrier between you and God. 
Some people it's anger. Some people it's hurts from your past. There's unlimited amounts of things that I could list. Some of it's your sin. That's the, I don't want to, I love this more. And it's like these barriers that we're putting up between us and God. You gotta re, if you receive this love, do you know what you realize? This love is so incredible, you have to share it. I remember when I first trusted Christ as my Savior, the, the guy that led me to Jesus was telling me he's an evangel, gifted as an evangelist, and he was telling me about sharing the gospel. And he said, the gospel is like this. He said, imagine in your backyard, you went to dig a hole for a pool. And as you were digging that hole, money started to fill that hole up. And every time you took money out of the hole, it filled itself back up. He said, what kind of jerk would you have to be to not give that money away to everybody who needs it? And he says, and that's what it's like with the gospel. No matter how much you give it away, you don't lose it. What about God's love? I mean, when I eat a good dessert, I say, here, you've got to have some of this. We're talking about the love of God. Unconditional, undeserved. Some of you are with your performance or religion or your reputation. It's like, once I get to this spot, let me tell you something, you're never going to get there. You're never going to be worthy. You're not, it's never going to be good enough. You're never going to do more good than your sin and wash it away, do it on your own. You just got to receive the love of Christ that's been poured out for you at the cross of Christ. When you receive that, then you start to share that. Sometimes at an immature level, and then you grow in love. The way that I love my wife today, different than the way that I love my wife when I got on my knee that day. You grow in love through difficulty, through sacrifice, through sickness, through good experiences, through all of life. You grow in this and you start receiving the love of God more. You start understanding it more. It seems like this is like little kid concept. Little kids can be loved by God. But then as a 55-year-old, you understand it different than you did as a 5-year-old. And the more you understand it, the more you're able to give it. How? How do I love like this? You've been loved like this. That's the answer. And so it's the same as last week when I said to you, if you can't forgive someone, it's not because their sin against you is so bad. It's because you don't realize how much you've been forgiven. So if you can't love like this, the issue is, have you received this kind of love? It's a great love. And it's a biblical love. Different than what we oftentimes talk about. So biblical love is more than just actions. Biblical love is for the sake of the other person. I could say that it's selfless. I could say that it's sacrificial, but I don't want those churchy words to just get caught up there. It's when you're loving not for the sake of your own, what you get, but it's when you love for the sake of the other person and you actually have joy in that. So I could say to my wife, she's not in here right now, I could say, hey, I'm going to go clean up. I'm going to get the sandwiches out from underneath the seat of your car today and then in hopes that she then makes me my favorite meal. That's not love. Because it brings me joy to serve her, that would be love. Don't ask me. Don't press me on my motives. I'm not sure sometimes. <laughs> but there is a difference, and it does matter. And verses 8 through 13 is this, that love, biblical love, is eternal. Biblical love is eternal. Look at verses 8 through 13 with me. Love never ends. As for mercies, they'll pass away. And he just goes through, and he hits these gifts again. He starts talking about they fade away, and a time's coming. It's going to be different. That's why I use the analogy of the child becoming an adult. There's, things are going to be different. They're not always going to be the way they are today. It says, as for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. We're doing what we're, at the church age right now. We're where we should be. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Things will change. Things are going to be different, he said. For now we see in a mere dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I will know fully, even as I am fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. Abide in these things. 
Abide in these three, but the greatest of these is love. And what he's showing here is this. As incredible as those are, as incredible as faith is, as incredible as hope is, faith will become sight. Hope will be fulfilled. Love will last. Love endures. Love, biblical love, is eternal. Self-love, not eternal. Biblical love is eternal. You go back up to the very beginning of verse 8. He says that love never ends. Some of you have your Bibles with you. I'd circle that word never. Or if you've got it on an app, I'd highlight that word never. It's the only place that Paul uses this word in any of his letters. He's talking about love. Never ends. And lasts for this, your marriage, momentary. Your marriage, and only this lifetime. In the resurrection, there's no marriage. But what you do in love, that's eternal. What you do in the marriage that's, that's loving, eternal. Eternal rewards, eternal benefit. The love continues. That love continues. And so I said at the beginning, you know, look around at each other, I think. I think I said that. You look around. If you look around at each other here today, you'll see married couples. And some of you are married. You just go ahead and look at each other. Go ahead and look at each other if you're married to each other. Here's the reality. Next time we do a marriage series, two or three years, some of you won't be married. I'm not saying that to be a jerk. Just statistically, that's true. Some of you not married, here's the reality. Some of people won't even be at church. Not just this church, they won't be at any church and walk away from the faith. You know why? There's issues that are going on today, and they're kind of like that water leak at my house. You, you can keep going. You can keep going today. Eventually, eventually you're going to have to deal with that. And people don't want to deal with that? Just go get a new house. Or... We've got major problems. We just learned to live with these major problems. It's, still, it doesn't end up, it's not this, though. It's not this kind of love that we're talking about. See, if, we, if, we fa- if that happens, if we fa- somebody failed here in this passage, this kind of love is not happening because this kind of love endures everything. This kind of love, this kind of love, it lasts. And you can say you have this kind of love, but here's the real test. How do you live with each other? Do you do verses 4 through 7? Because one guy that I read this week, I think it was Gary Thomas, I'm not positive exactly which book it was, I've recommended several books in the small group study, um, said that a lot of husbands, when they go to divorce their wife, they'll say things like this, I never really loved you. And they think that that's a commentary, they're trying to hurt the, the other person, they think it's a commentary on the woman, like she's not lovable or something. The reality is it's a commentary on your own heart. Are you sure you're a Christian? That'd be the real question. Because you haven't been demonstrating Christian love. If you never loved, because here's how you know if you love God, is you love other people. It's in 1 John. I told you that God is love from 1 John chapter 4. Here's another verse from 1 John chapter 4. You want to check out love, go read 1 John 4. 1 John chapter 4 says this. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his own brother, whom he has seen, cannot love. It's not possible. Cannot love God whom he's not seen. There's another author I saw that was talking about God and said he's so much easier to love than people because he never returns evil for good. He doesn't have many of the characteristics that we as sinners have in the way that we respond to love. But the, the measure is not just do I have these affectionate thoughts towards God, these tingly feelings when I think about God, but do I love other people with actions, emotions, motives? Because if I don't do that, I don't love him. And so how do I start doing that? i got to be in love with him. How I love him impacts then how I relate in all these other spots. And that kind of love, that love endures. It never ends. And you know what? All of us here that are married pledged that kind of love at one point. I was going through some of my files this week of different marriages, and I pulled out some vows. I typically use, unless somebody wants to write their own vows, just traditional wedding vows. You know, in, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poor. You know, what different words that get said in there, but it's basically through all circumstances. And then it ends with, till death do us part. From this day forward, till death do us part. 
So probably all of you that are married said something like that to one another when you got married. I rewrote some vows this week based on this sermon series that we've done together. So some of you that are married may want to hold each other's hands in this moment, and you can squeeze them, squeeze really tight if you're feeling like the person should be convicted. (laughs) Just kidding. But here's what I want you to do. I'm just going to go through this and say, we know something now that we didn't know the day that we stood at that altar. And so maybe some of you would rewrite your vows. Some of you are single, but you plan, you don't necessarily think you have the gift of singleness. Some of you do. Praise the Lord for that. Some of you don't, and you think you're going to get married at some point. You can write your vows now, even if you don't know that person. Because the commitment's not really about that person. It's committed to that person, but it's ultimately a commitment to God. And so listen to these vows that I rewrote, just based on our sermon series. These are my words. You can write them in your own words. If you're going to write some of your own vows, but... I, and then the husband or wife insert their name, take thee to be my bride or husband, to love with a sacrificial love. I desire to have our marriage be a picture of Christ's love for the church. Says Christ died for his bride, the church. I will daily die for you by being patient when you wrong me. I commit to be kind as I sense and seek to meet your needs. I commit to never being arrogant or proud or rude. And when I do, I will seek your forgiveness. I commit to celebrate intimacy often as an expression of my love for you. I won't settle for cheap imitations of love, but will seek God's call to love. I won't keep a ledger of our wrongs, and I will forgive as God has forgiven me. I commit to love you unconditionally as God has loved me. Sickness will be an opportunity to show the love Christ has shown me. Difficulty and trouble will be an avenue to pour out the love that has been poured into me. I will love you with, with and through all circumstances, without exception. It will be my joy to invest my life serving you. I will pray for you. I will pray with you. I will seek your good. I will be honest before God and you till death do us part. So married couples, could you say that? Could you commit to that? And if not, talk about where not. Where, where would it be a real struggle? And, and if so, maybe, maybe you recommit those vows. You can recommit those vows. You can do it with a pastor. You don't have to do it with a pastor. You can do it maybe on your anniversary every year. You pull the vows back out and you talk about the vows, a way to evaluate your relationship. But here's the reality. Do something. Don't just be hearers of the word. Be doers. And so today, there's things that you can do when you leave here today, out in the lobby. You want to sign up for our small group on marriage that's starting? It's going to start on June 13th. You can take a break from your current small group if you need to. Go to that small group. Be there. Talk through some of these issues. At the end of that small group, we're going to have mentor couples. You want to sign up to be mentored by a couple or just have somebody else you talk about marriage with? Sign up. You want to be a mentor couple. You've been through the fire. You know what it's like. And you've got something. You don't have it figured out, but you've got some things to share. Sign up for our mentor couple training. You can be one of the mentor couples. Some of you may need a counselor. That might be, you might be in emergency mode. Totally, that's fine. Go for it. Don't do something now. Some of you might not be in emergency mode, but you need a, an outside perspective. You need a, a third party that's not emotionally vested in this, but is going to speak biblical truth to you and has seen some of these things before. We've got people we recommend for that. And as a pastor, any of our pastors would love to talk with you as well. But do something. Don't just let this problem be there, like the water underneath my house. See, I, I imagine one day what's going to happen. I've got four daughters, those of you didn't know that. That's a lot of weddings. But the fear is not just the finances of that whole deal. Come on, we're going to the beach. You know? What I imagine happening is that someday those girls are going to come to me and they're going to say, Dad, I want to get married. And I'm going to say, why do you want to get married? And they're going to go, because I'm in love. And I'm going to probably first throw up in my mouth. That's probably the first thing that's going to happen. 
And then I'm going to try not to judge them, going, what do you know? You don't know anything about love. You know, however old I am at that point. Hopefully I know more than I do today. Um, but I sure hope that what they mean by that is a whole lot closer to this than what they're getting in the culture out there. I sure hope that they're willing to sacrifice and lay their life down for the sake of another person. Not just die for them, but in their joy, lay their life down daily for them. I'm going to pray that that would be true for us. Statistically, there are people in this room that will not be married, that are married right now. I'm going to pray that's not true for our church. That we would have the kind of love for each other that's different than what you see in the rest of this world. So let me pray for us. Father, I come before you right now and I pray, I pray specifically for those that are married at this moment. I pray for every one of those marriages. Some of them may be a month old. Some of them might be 40 years that they've been married or longer. And God, we know your love endures forever, but sometimes we are selfish. And our sin, we start seeking sin and chasing that. God, will you rebuke us and change us in that? God, I pray you'd use this marriage series ultimately in our sanctification for those of us who are believers. I pray for anybody here who's not a believer in Jesus Christ, you'd confront them with their sin, call them to you, and pour your love out into their hearts. And then even when we go to sing these songs in just a moment, you'd call them to you that they would trust your son Jesus as Savior. And Father, I pray for husbands to lead courageously. I pray that you'd give them the boldness to be the sacrificial servants that you called us to be. And I pray for wives to respect their husbands. God, I pray that you would speak into our hearts of the, of the wives in this church and that they'd be a different kind of wife than what you see so many times throughout the culture and that people would be drawn to our marriages because they're different, because they see your love, because they see love that is a picture of your love for the church. And Father, I pray. I pray when I'm the one that's the enemy, when I'm the sinful one and my wife needs to needs to love me. In spite of that, I pray that you'd humble my heart and, and convict me of my sin and have me turn back to you continually. And Father, I pray for those here that, that have a spouse that doesn't want to do this stuff. God, by your power, let your love be their empowerment. Pour your love into their hearts. Help them to, to live the life that you talk about when we're married to a non-believer, when we're married to somebody who's not rebelling against you, to have that kind of love, the supernatural power that even in the mess, you draw people to yourself through their marriage. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.